Our first scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 80, verses 7 through 19. Give you a second to find that if you'd like to follow along. Psalm 80, verses 7 through 19. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have buried it with, burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that's really um, important to me is um, in the preaching of the word, uh, making sure that it's just never about one person. And so I think it's so valuable to hear uh, other voices uh, uh, preach preach the word. And so I'm so thankful for Jordan and, and uh, other elders that, that will do that from time to time around here because I know some of you are re- always ready for a break from me, so it's always good for somebody else to come. But, but even more than that uh, is, is just, it's not, it's not one person. It is, this is God's word. And so I'm so thankful. So uh, this morning I, I asked uh, Mike Shea to, uh, to share the word with us. And if you haven't met Mike, um, he and I, I think my first Sunday here, which was the first Sunday of, of last Jul- of July, I think was, we figured that, I think it was his first Sunday too. They've just moved back to this area. I'm just so thankful for Mike. He's, he's become a, a good friend just over the last few months. We, we share so many things in common, um, but he's better than me at so many things, including probably guitar and soccer and I don't even know, a whole bunch of stuff. But Mike is um, an ordained minister. But he, by trade right now, he is a, an attorney. And so I tried to come up with a good lawyer joke, but I couldn't think of one. So I'll just have to let, let that pass. Anyway, I, yeah, will you guys just uh, welcome Mike Shea up to share with us this morning? Well, I want to say thank you to Nick and uh, to all of you for entrusting me uh, with this opportunity to preach the word and for the warm welcome that you've given to me and my family since we uh, moved up here last summer. In 1991, I was a seminary student. Katie and I were engaged to be married, and I spent the summer in India on a missionary internship. And on the way to India, I stopped and spent a few days in Bangkok, Thailand, to visit a college friend of mine who was serving as a missionary there with Wycliffe Bible Translators. While I was there, we went to some sort of small group gathering of American missionaries, And I met there a young woman about my age, and we started chatting about where we were from, and I uh, told her that my fiancé was from Oregon, Illinois, and she said, no way, I'm from Stillman Valley. (laughs) 
Can you believe it? What are the odds? Meet somebody from Stillman Valley in Bangkok, Thailand, and now 32 years later, I'm about to join a church uh, in, uh, in Stillman Valley, uh, Illinois. So now I have to ask, was anyone here in Bangkok in the summer of <laughs> 1991? As we got to talking, she also told me that uh, she was the pork queen of Ogle County in the 1980s. So maybe that'll help figure out who it is. So if any of you have any guess as to who uh, this person is, uh, let me know after the service. That, might, that would be a really fun reconnection uh, to make. Anyway, while I was in India that summer, I learned something there that kind of relates to the subject of this morning's sermon. I learned that in Hinduism, there are three paths or margas, and I've got a slide uh, for this. There's karma marga, which is the path of works. There's what they call bhakti marga, which is the path of devotion. And then there's yana marga, which is the path of knowledge. But it wasn't until many years later that I realized that, you know, we have these same three paths in our Christian culture. And the followers of these three paths often fight with each other about which one is more important. So we've got the prayer warriors who may discount theology as just head knowledge and say that what we really need is the heart knowledge, like bhakti, marga. Then there are the social justice warriors who may discount both head and heart knowledge and say that we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We need to be out there feeding and clothing the poor, doing good works. And then there are the theologians who may push back again against that and say, well, what's the point of feeding the poor if we don't preach the truth that will save their souls? And so we must prioritize preaching and theology above all else. Now, of course, there shouldn't be a fight between these three paths. We must love the Lord our God with all our hearts and all our minds and all our strength. So all three paths are important. But apart from the gospel, all three paths are equally bad. If we treat these three paths as though they are ladders to God, then we end up with, next slide, legalism, the belief that we are right with God because we do the works of the law, pietism, the belief that we are right with God because we pray and do other devotional exercises, or Gnosticism, the belief that we are right with God because we think all the right thoughts about him. Now, when I was a pastor, I think I did a pretty good job of preaching against legalism. We were known as the church that proclaimed salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from the works of the law. But I don't think I did such a great job of warning people of the dangers of pietism and Gnosticism. If you listen to some of my early sermons when I was a young zealot, you might have come away with the, the feeling that if you didn't read your Bible every day and you didn't have the right theology, you might not be a real Christian. And I regret preaching like that. So part of the point of today's sermon, not the whole point, probably not even the main point, but one of the points of today's sermon is to warn you against the danger of pietism. I hope you'll, hear, you'll leave this morning with a deeper understanding that abiding in Christ does not mean having daily devotions. Abiding in Christ means just keep on trusting Jesus. Persevere in faith. Keep on trusting Jesus. Now let's put up an outline of today's sermon so you can see where we're headed. And then I will read all of this morning's text and then pray for us. John 15, 
1 through 11. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son into the world to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And in his name we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. I pray that you would fill me with your Spirit, that I might proclaim your word in the strength that you supply, and that you would fall upon all of us and grant us the grace of hearing with faith. May our faith be strengthened that we may bear fruit to your glory and have peace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as Nick has pointed out to us more than once, whenever Jesus says in John that he is the true something, it means that he is comparing himself to something in the Hebrew Bible. So in Exodus, God sent manna from heaven, sent manna in the desert, bread from heaven, but Jesus says he is the true bread. Jesus says he is the true bread. In the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle, the meeting place between God and man. But in John 1.14, we read that the word Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. He is the true meeting place between God and humanity. Later in that same chapter, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, referring to Jacob's ladder, right? But the point is not that he is the true ladder. The point is that he is the true Jacob. He is the true Israel. Why did he choose 12 disciples? Not because eggs and donuts are sold by the dozen. He chose 12 disciples because Jacob had 12 sons. Israel had 12 tribes. And Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus came to fulfill for us the righteousness of the law, to succeed on our behalf at every point in which Israel failed. Israel, in the generation after the Exodus, hardened their hearts and tested God, and so they wandered for 40 years and died in that desert. So Jesus was led by the Spirit to go out into the desert and to be tempted by the devil, where he fasted for 40 days. And then he did not put God to the test. 
but he overcame on our behalf all the temptations of the devil to which we so frequently succumb. The good news of the gospel is that when you are grafted in like a branch into the true vine of Jesus, the true Israel, when you are united with Christ by faith alone, then his righteousness is given to you as a free gift. His righteousness is regarded as your own. And so if you are in Christ, you will never be any more righteous before God than you are at this moment. Because his righteousness is regarded as yours. And if you are in Christ, you will never be any less righteous before God than you are at this moment. Because his righteousness is regarded as yours and covers your sin like a spotless robe. Now let's go back and look at the Old Testament background of Israel as a vine. Isaiah says in chapter 5 that the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So Israel failed to bear the fruit of righteousness, and God tore down its fence, its hedge of protection, so that they were trampled upon by the nations and taken into exile. Psalm 80, which Brian read before the sermon, said the same thing. Remember, verse 8 said, You brought a vine out of Egypt, obviously referring to the exodus of Israel. And then that vine was planted in the promised land, and its branches spread from the river to the sea. But then Israel failed to produce righteous fruit and became idolatrous, and God broke down their walls and let them be carried away into exile. And so now the people of God, after exile, are praying in Psalm 80 for restoration. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. But then they say something amazing in verse 17. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. So they are praying not just for the restoration of Israel. They are praying that God would send the son of man, the Messiah, the Christ. And then they pray something even more amazing in verse 18. They say, then... That is, when you send the Son of Man, then, when Messiah comes, then we will not turn back from you. Do you see what they're praying? They're saying, we need more than just restoration. We need more than just reestablished Israel after the exile, because if Israel is restored to where they were before, they'll just blow it again. We need more than just restoration. We need the Messiah. Then we will not turn away from you. I believe that if you drill down deeply enough into any scripture, you'll eventually strike oil. And when you do, the oil that gushes forth is the new covenant in the blood of Jesus the Messiah. That's the big idea of the whole Bible. In the old covenant, God chose Israel and gave them a law and said, do this and you shall live. But they didn't do that and they died. And then they went into exile. And so then God said through Jeremiah that he was going to make a new covenant with Israel. And it would not be like the old covenant. What was the difference? The difference was that in the new covenant, he would not leave it up to his people. In the new covenant, he was going to ensure both sides of the equation. He wasn't going to leave it up to us to obey the law and be righteous. Instead, he was going to write the law 
on our hearts. He was going to put his spirit inside of us so that we would bear fruit that would last. And now that he has done that, we will not turn back from him. He has grafted us into the true vine of Jesus so that as a vine pumps sap out into the branches and causes them to bear much fruit, so the sap of the Holy Spirit fills us through our connection to the vine, the true vine of Jesus, and we bear much fruit. Think for a minute about the immediate context of this I am the true vine statement in the book of John here in chapter 15. In chapter 14, Jesus teaches all about the Holy Spirit. In chapter 16, Jesus teaches all about the Holy Spirit. Chapter 15 is not a parenthesis. He's on the same subject. He's in the upper room with his disciples. It's after the Last Supper. He's told them that he's about to leave them, but he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send the Holy Spirit, and I myself will be in you. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. We are filled with the Spirit through our union with Christ, through our connection to Jesus, the true vine. And one implication of this is that a Spirit-filled church is not one that is always talking about the Holy Spirit and his gifts. A Spirit-filled church is always calling attention to Jesus Christ because the Spirit was sent to glorify Christ. When you look at a plant, you don't usually see the sap, but you do see the vine. We are filled with the Spirit through our connection to Christ, and so a Spirit-filled church is a Christ-centered church. Okay, now don't worry, because my last two points are much shorter. Jesus said, whoever abides in me will bear much fruit. And what does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, I was taught in college by my campus minister that it meant having a daily quiet time, praying and reading my Bible every day. But after studying this word for abide in John's writings, I've come to the conclusion that to abide in Christ means to keep on trusting in Jesus. And I don't have time this morning to go through all the verses, but if you look up all the occurrences of abide in John and in 1 John, you'll see that they're often used in parallel. And the reason that this word abide or remain is used for believing is to make this point that saving faith is persevering faith. Saving faith is persevering faith. So abiding brings in that idea of persevering faith, to keep on trusting. Now, of course, we should read our Bibles and pray. I'm all for that. But why should we read the Bible and pray? Because these things strengthen our faith. Prayer and Bible study are means through which we receive grace that strengthens our faith. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ, says Romans 10, 12. But it is faith alone and not Bible reading that unites you to Jesus Christ. And if you get that wrong, you'll start looking to your own works of devotion as the ground of your assurance. Instead of looking outside of yourself in faith to the finished work of Christ. You'll start to wonder if you've prayed and read your Bible enough for all these promises of the gospel to be really true for you. And the enemy of your soul will then be able to get a foothold and tell you that God is angry with you because it's been so long since you prayed. 
And if you think God is angry with you, guess what? You're probably not going to want to pray tomorrow either. So let me tell you the gospel again, Christian. In Christ, you are already perfectly righteous before God. God is not angry with you. God will never be angry with you again. Do you believe that? Every time I preach that, somebody argues with me. People have a hard time believing that God will never be angry with them again. So let me prove it to you. In Isaiah 53, we have the well-known chapter read often in this Lenten season that foretells the cross of Christ and describes substitutionary atonement as clearly as anywhere in the New Testament. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And then the very next chapter, 54, is called in verse 17, the heritage of the servants of the Lord. It's a catalog of all the blessings we, the servants of the Lord, inherit from Jesus, the servant of the Lord, capital S, because of his death for us, described in chapter 53. And listen to this one. Listen to this incomparable blessing of our inheritance in Isaiah 54, 9. To me, this is God speaking, to me this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. God is not angry with you. His anger has been turned away. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to the last drop. That cup is empty. He will never be angry with you again. Because all of his anger against all of your sins was emptied out upon Jesus on the cross. Now sure, God may, in his love for you, let you experience some of the negative consequences of your sins. He disciplines us in love as our Father, but he is never and will never be angry with you. And if you struggle to believe that, memorize this verse, Isaiah 54, 9. So abide in Christ. Keep on trusting in him, and you will bear much fruit. Now already you may be feeling the temptation to look to yourself instead of Christ. Already you might be thinking, do I bear much fruit? Have I borne, have I borne much fruit? Have I borne enough fruit? We've got to stop doing that. Because the point of the text is to keep on trusting Jesus, not to be fruit inspectors. This is a promise, not a command. God promises that if you are in Christ, you will bear fruit. The command is not to bear fruit. The command is to keep on trusting him, to abide in him, and then... You will bear fruit. We are not supposed to examine our fruit and then make that self-evaluation the ground of our assurance. There's a number of reasons why that's a bad idea. But let me just focus on the one that jumps out to me from verses 2 and 3 of John 15. What happens to the branch after it does bear fruit? Verse 2 says that the father... The gardener or the vine dresser prunes the branch. So the fruit 
is taken away from you. I think that many times we don't even see the fruit that we're bearing. And perhaps it is to keep us from boasting or trusting in our own fruitfulness that we are not allowed to see all the fruit that we bear. Or maybe sometimes we do see it, but then it's taken away. We have to let go of the fruit that we bear. If we cling to it, if we trust in it, if we try to control it, then it will rot on the vine. And so God prunes it off, and that can be painful. Pruning sounds painful to me. The gardener does not just pick the fruit. He prunes way back on the branch. And if you've been in Christ for a while, I bet you know what I'm talking about. You've been pruned before. And you know it can hurt. And so that's why inspecting your fruit is a bad ground for your assurance. You may not see much fruit in your life right now. You may just see pain and loss. But now here's some good news again, Christian. Verse 3, Jesus says, You are already clean. The word for pruned in verse 2 and the word for clean in verse 3 are the same word. The fact that he cleans you in verse 2 doesn't mean that you're not already clean because of his word, he says in verse 3. So you need to be cleaned, but you're already clean. As Luther says, you are simul justus et peccator, simultaneously righteous and a sinner. Because you're still a sinner, you need to be cleaned lest you spoil your own fruit, but because you are righteous in Christ, you are already clean. Reminds me of what Jesus said to Peter back in chapter 13 when he wanted to wash his feet. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet then, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, referring to Judas. He says, you are clean. So sure, you walk through the world and you still get soiled, you still get your feet dirty every day, but that doesn't change the fact that you are already decisively clean. We sin every day in word, thought, and deed, but that doesn't change the fact that we are forgiven once and for all, that all of our sins are already forgiven. We are already clean. So that's the first and most important word of encouragement when you are suffering the painful side effects of pruning. Remember that you are already clean. But the other encouraging word I see here is the purpose of the Father in pruning you as a branch on the vine of Christ. The purpose is that you will be even more fruitful. That's why you prune a vine. That it will bear even more fruit. So don't mistake the loving, fruit-maximizing care of the gardener for his displeasure. He's not pruning you because he's displeased with you. He's not pruning you because you're not already clean. He loves you, and he is making you, through this suffering, even more fruitful. It's a promise. You will bear much fruit, not perfectly in this world, but progressively in this world and perfectly in the next. Just keep on trusting him. 
and he will keep you to the end. He will fill you with his spirit and cause you to bear fruit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this promise that you will keep us and that you will finish what you've started in us, that you will make us fruitful. Thank you that you sent your son to die in our place and that your anger is turned away and that you have promised that you will never be angry with us again. Help us to believe that. Help us to trust you. Help us to rejoice in that and to bear fruit to your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.